Welcome. 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 You're listening to Built by Us. Built by Us. Built by Us. Built by Us. Did you know that there are themes each year for Black History Month? This year is health and wellness. According to the Associate for the Study of African American Life and History, this year's theme explores, quote, the legacy of not only black scholars and medical practitioners in Western medicine, but also other ways of knowing. For example, birth workers, doulas, midwives, herbalists, throughout the African diaspora. The 2022 theme considers activities, rituals, and initiatives that black communities have done to be well. And we love this theme here on Built By Us. I just feel like it feels so timely for us to be talking about wellness during a point in our present where we've really come to understand what self-care means and why community care is important. We know that over our time, we've had some amazing, enlightening conversations in the past with Black movement makers about wellness, healing, and care. And so we wanted to use this time to bring back those conversations. Today, you're going to be hearing an episode with Dr. Kimberly Hardy on mental health and therapy. It's our viewpoint that, you know, anyone and everyone can benefit from therapy. And so we spoke with Dr. Hardy about mental and emotional healing in the Black community. We hope that you enjoy. Well, hi, everybody. So, yeah, I am Kimberly Hardy. I'm a professor at Fayetteville State University in the uh, social work program where I teach in both the BSW and now also the MSW program. Uh, this is going to be the start of my sixth, the sixth year there. Um, uh, even though I have been a clinician, I've been a school social worker my entire practice career uh, in the K through 12 environment, um, which I adore. And anyone focusing on social work, if you're wondering what's the best field of practice, I'm very biased, but I really do think that it's so cool social work. Uh, but I transitioned when I became uh, Dr. Kim to more macro work. And so now I focus more on uh, community organizing and policy work. Um, and that really culminated in my own run for the North Carolina General Assembly in the last election cycle for House District 43. So, um, so advocacy, community organizing, and policy are very, very important to me. But at the core of all of those things are people. And so understanding and working with folks around mental health is very important to me as well. Um, if you want any more background, let me know. But that's kind of the gist of it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so today we brought her here to discuss mental health care in Black community and also why it's stigmatized. Um, in the African-American community, mental health issues are all, um, often um, brought upon by a number of different things, including psychological stress of systematic racism. And as of this, um, as a result, African-Americans are 20% more likely to report this distress than their white counterparts. And what's even more mind blowing is that um, only just about one in every three African-Americans who struggle with mental health issues will um, ever receive the appropriate treatment. So, well, I mean, that's true. And it's unfortunate that in 2021, we're still having this conversation, right? But um, it, which means we've done a lot of work and yet still have so much more work to do. Um, so yeah, let's, let's, let's dig into it. Um, definitely. I would first like to ask you, what do you think some reasons that, um, there is so much stigma surrounding mental health in these black and brown communities? Well, so uh, like I said, we've done a lot of research on this over the generations and, 
I think there's any number of things, right? So starting with the the huge disclaimer that everybody's journal journey is personal and individual, and we're never talking about 100% of anyone. That said, we do know there's some broad strokes here. Uh, for one, there is this uh, this trope about being uh, weak if you feel the need to go and and talk to somebody about the problems you're having. Uh, generationally, people will say, "Well, you know, my people survived, you know, in." enslavement and the middle passage we got through Jim Crow and civil rights era I mean I'm just dealing with this if I can't deal with this then what does that say about me I'm weak or I have some sort of uh, less than complex so I think there's a, a challenge there that we have this this trope around us needing to be strong especially for I believe African-American women there's almost worn like a badge of honor this notion of being a strong black woman who is resilient and tough and can you know shoulder all of the responsibilities of the world on her own. And while that might be true, that doesn't mean that we should do it that way or that we're doing it very well. Um, so I think there's some, some issues there. I think there's also a misconception in large measure because of media portrayals that if you have need of mental health uh, uh, treatment or care, uh, that means you're crazy. Something is wrong with you, you know? I mean, I, I have colleagues who themselves are therapists, but will, when faced with, you know, major challenges, it, it, when you ask them, well, so have you talked to anybody? Well, I ain't crazy. I don't need, you know, and it's like, how can you have such a duality where in one space you're providing mental health care and you see it as a normal, natural thing, but for yourself, you're somehow, uh, you know, removed from, from needing to receive the very services you give. So I think everything from generational uh, st stigma to, you know, my, my ancestors made it, I can make it. Um, the badge of honor of being a strong black woman, I can do whatever and, and all that, or just this notion that mental health means that you're crazy and something is wrong with you. And those are huge, deeply entrenched messages that continue to be reinforced. Um, and I think it's hard to break those stereotypes down. It's possible, but it's difficult. Definitely. And something that I just want to add is you mentioned about resilience. And, you know, um, a lot of people love to say, well, our ancestors found their resilience and solace in the church. So mm -hmm. um, some people think that you can just, you know, pray away the situation. And um, I'm blessed to have um, a father who is a pastor and a mother. Well, he's also a social worker and he understands, yes, you know, God is a, a um, you know, a valuable source if that's what you choose to use. But there's also measures and different people put into place that you should utilize. So, yes, Can that I build on that comment. Can yes, I build on that? Definitely. Oh my God, good. Because now you done got into my area. Now, see, my area of research is actually around religion and spirituality and specifically African-Americans in the Black church. And so um, it, I actually did my dissertation research on this and then replicated the study later on. And what I'm finding, and this is good news, is that generationally, while our parents and grandparents are very entrenched in, in the Black church and see the pastor and, uh, you know, as an extension of God and thus their source of support, uh, their children and grandchildren are much more open to and aware of the need to engage with, you know, if I have, if my arm is broken, uh, I'm going to go to the, to the doctor, you know, I'm going to go to the, so and there's, and I'm not saying that I don't believe in God to heal my arm, but I know that if I want it to heal right, 
Okay, if I want it to heal right, I need to go to the person who was trained to do this work. And so, um, so yeah, we found some real generational divides between uh, when we did the data looking at the issues that African Americans go to uh, for help seeking. They go to the pastor for everything when they're older, when they're the the more. Uh, the current generation, however, tends to have a different understanding that when I have this issue, I go to the pastor. When I have this issue, I go to a counselor. When I have this issue, I go, you know, and so um, so it was good to see that there is a shift, I think, generationally to understanding that it is a yes and not an either or. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's a lot of the faith community aspect of this that says I'm going to trust God to get through a thing and I have helped clinicians understand that that is active faith and active mental health care but you it can't be to the exclusion of talking to a, a, a licensed clinical professional so I'm glad you you brought that up definitely and while staying on the topic um what is the first step in overcoming you know, the stigma of black communities you mentioned um about how there's a stereotype of if you seek treatment, you're considered crazy. So what do we do to try to get away from this stereotype? I mean, we have been trying to do the first step for so long, right? I mean, you name it. We've tried everything from normalizing this in the culture through, uh, through media. I think you see a lot more of it now. I mean, you can literally go to, you know, Pinterest or Google images and look up like, you know, any kind of self-empowerment, mental health care stuff. And you'll see all kinds of things for, you know, BIPOC folks who are really making space for, uh, for the mental health care that they need, either self-care or professional care. But I think there's also something to be said for when folks are brave enough. And it's and it's unfortunate that you have to use the, the language of bravery, but because of the really intense community and cultural stigma, it really does come down to being brave enough to say, I, oh, I've seen a therapist and you got to almost say it like it's nothing like, well, yeah, I was talking to my therapist the other day and they're like, wait, you went to a therapist? You know? And then Pete, because what I think happens is when somebody sees you, right? So they're like, oh, you know, my friend Trinity said that she went to a therapist, but I thought, I mean, the Trinity's so cool, you know, but, but if you talk about it in your circles, as if this is just, well, of course, my arm hurt, I went to the doctor, and then after that, I went and talked to my therapist, and then I had dinner with my friends, you know, like, it, it has to become part of our normal conversation, and so that it isn't, um, it, it isn't mystified anymore, like, somebody who knows you will say, oh, well, wait a minute, if she can do it, maybe I can do it, maybe I can talk to her about that a little bit more, she's a safe person for me to bring up any uh, apprehensions I might have had about going to see a therapist, like, well, what did, what do you do there? And, you know, that kind of thing, right? People might be inquisitive and you give them permission to ask. I also think that things like, you know, uh, recently the, the tennis star, uh, uh, Naomi Osaka, she came out as saying, look, I am not okay. And, and she is, was cha challenged by what had happened. And I believe it was the U.S. Open years ago. Right. So that tells you that the scars remain just because you don't address it doesn't mean it doesn't still affect you and that it will come out and manifest itself in one way or another, whether you like it or not. Better to let it come out in a controlled and, and thoughtful way with someone who can really help you process it than to have it, you know, 
manifest into something worse, either physically, psychologically, or, or some combination of both. So I think it helps when people who are respected, either in your personal circles or in sort of national circles, says, yeah, it's okay. I believe that's her headline, in fact, on, on Time Magazine is, it's okay to not be okay. And I think that really helps start a conversation for a lot of women of color, uh, in particular, around going ahead and admitting that sometimes this is hard and I could use a little support. So I think that's a that's a step. I don't know if it's the first step. I think um, I think there needs to be steps on a lot of levels. The media has a responsibility, for example, to stop portraying mental illness as you're nuts and you're hearing voices and you're, you're seeing things. I mean, and those are real, right? We know that hallucinations and, and auditory, you know, process, we know that those things occur. But when, when the media shows uh, mental illness, they show it as this out of control, um, weird and bizarre behavior and, and people are scary and that sort of thing. And that doesn't help. I think we need to make it um, a very common thing in, in all manner of media that sometimes people need to talk to someone and that's perfectly okay. And that needing to talk to a, a, a therapist or a counselor can be for things like you know, schizophrenia, sure, but could also be things like, I'm having a really hard time dealing with this breakup. Um, it could be, I'm having a really hard time dealing with the loss of my loved one. I'm having a really difficult time taking in all of this negative energy that's going on in society that I keep seeing through my television and through social media, right? Like sometimes you just want to talk to somebody and get it out. It doesn't always mean that you have some sort of really traumatic and serious incident and uh, and a profound mental health issue. So I hope that somewhat answered the question. Yes, ma'am, definitely. And I was sitting here thinking um, about what you were saying about the media, and I feel like that's uh, you know that's part of the issue. Um, I have some friends, or at least when I think back to like when I was in middle school, we had I had these people who were like, oh yeah, I have anxiety, I have this, I have that, or or just not even saying that they have anything. They're just saying, oh, I'm sleepy all the time, or this, that, and the third. They have all these symptoms, and they just think it's normal just because they don't, you know, it's not something that's exposed to them, or they don't literally don't even know that certain stuff exists and now they're going through all their lives with this mental health disorder and they think it's okay or they just think it's normal and they never you know seek treatment so I, mm -hmm. I definitely think the media plays a huge role in that um, right sorry I was just thinking about when you were talking about media I was imagining like movies and tv shows that I've watched where therapy is a part of it and like usually the positive storylines are like someone has to be convinced that they need to go to therapy and they're like, you know, they're not into it. They finally go and they have a good experience and it ends up great. But what if it was more common if people were just going to therapy and you just see a scene where they're just at therapy and they have, you know, a good discussion. And then the next scene is the rest of the movie. You know, it doesn't have to be the struggle of like, you should go, it will help, it will be amazing. So if normalizing like you're talking about is um, is one of the the, probably quickest ways to destigmatize this work um, is normalizing it. You know, just the idea of it's not a struggle or it's not a big deal. It's just, oh, I'm just going to therapy, like you said, and then I'll meet you for lunch afterward. And so I'm just imagining if TV shows or movies did it, 
like that, then we could, it it could feel feel normal. normal. I mean, think about it like this. If we think about like, so Ellen DeGeneres, I I don't know if you all remember it, but she had a show a long, long time ago, just the Ellen DeGeneres show, right? And there was this moment and we all knew it was coming because it was talked about so much. I mean, the show was wildly popular and there was this scene, she was going to do it. She was going to come out on television as, as her character being a lesbian. And so she did it and it was, you know, funny the way she did it, but it was also poignant, but we all also knew she is going to tank her career in, you know, because society simply was not ready for an out, you know, lesbian woman to be, because it wasn't even a, a huge aspect of the show ever. In fact, anyone who knew Ellen knew that she was a lesbian. It was, but it was not talked about, right? And so, but when she was going to talk about it, it became a huge thing. She did have a dip, but then people really built her up and said, that is a brave, courageous thing that she did. And then she became Ellen DeGeneres even bigger, right? But then what happened, it started slow, but I think now it's very common to see gay and lesbian characters in a relationship where their sexuality isn't the point of the show. And I think that needs to be more, uh, more because that's, that's real life, right? In real life, you know, my gay and lesbian family and friends are not just sitting around being like, well, I'm such a lesbian. No, right? They're just, I'm in love and, and, they're, and it never comes up. It's just understood that this is life. And I think it, television in, and movies are doing a much better job of just saying, yeah, sometimes there's people in the world who are gay, whatever, moving on. Like that's not the central theme, but I think you're so right that for therapy, it becomes things like Antoine Fisher, uh, where the whole thing is about Antoine's reluctance to engage in the therapeutic process and then all of the traumas that it brings up, which I think is also a thing that that harkens back to Trinity's initial question about stigma is people are very afraid of being vulnerable and feeling out of control. Um, There are also cultural messages of what's personal stays in the family. We don't talk about our personal business outside of the home, you know, that kind of thing. And so to do that and with a stranger, in fact, that's another level, but I think you're right. There should just be a scene where someone's in therapy and then it's over. And you know where they did that pretty okay? The Sopranos. Tony Soprano was a mob boss who was going to therapy. And it wasn't every single episode and it wasn't all of one episode and it didn't really play itself out as the main theme, obviously, of the show. But there would be a moment where he and his therapist would talk about something and then later in the episode, you might see an awareness and a change in behavior. That's all we're talking about. Like, so if Tony Soprano can go to see a therapist, I think I think Tony down the street can go to something. But I love what you say. If we, if we could just start making it a scene and not the scene, I think we could see some some real progress. Yeah, I was gonna jump in and say I uh, I agree with all of you, and I was gonna say I feel like the younger generation, like Gen Zers, I feel like they are making it normal because, like, at least with my friend group, I see like we're predominantly like women of color. And like, we talk about it so normally, like my friend will just like text in the group trying to be like, oh, like therapy was uh, today or like, oh, I got to go to therapy later. And then like, it's just like so normal to just like talk about it. Um, So I think, and I feel like at least like 
other young people that I know are, are trying to make it more normal. And it is kind of just like casual, like it's not a, a big deal. And none of us see it as a big deal because it's like, I mean, yeah, like you, it's just fine. Like it's something you just have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's getting better and it's, a, it's given me a little bit of, of hope. I think that's great. I think, um, you know, and it said, uh, I'm reminded of the phrase, and a child shall lead them, right? I'm, I'm thinking that it, it's, it's, it's the, no, the younger generation is doing an excellent job in changing a lot of things, you know, around issues of climate change and race and racism and social justice. Like, there is such an awake, an, uh, an awareness uh, of what is going on in the world. And I love how, you know, my son is 14 and, you know, he and his friends are like, that's absurd. Like, why, why do we hate someone for how they, that's dumb. Like, you know, like they're completely minimizing this, the impact of it. But I'm really glad also that you brought up young people and Trinity had mentioned this as well. Um, because what we saw with this last year of COVID where students were online, um, there was a lot of mental health concern that was going on. A lot of children who were experiencing, de- you know, symptoms of depression and anxiety um, because they weren't able to be around their friends, because they were hearing about all the scary things of COVID, uh, you know, very worried about their family members going out. Um, is grandma going to be okay? So not being able to engage with friends in their peer group, not being able to really connect with their family members and hearing all of this stuff. And then trying to learn online actually was a lot harder than I think most of the adults in their lives understood. And I am guilty of it as well, because, you know, I, by all accounts, my son is a pretty well-adjusted young man, but there came a point at which, it, it, you know, the novelty of being able to do school from your room uh, with these large breaks in between and stuff like that, it wore off. And, and I don't know that we were all paying a lot of attention to how it was wearing off. And so it started, and I've said this before, it's the, the, if you don't deal with it, it's going to manifest in, in one way or another. We had kids whose grades were trash this past academic year because there's just something about and and there was this uh, over-reliance on on the phrase you kids do everything online you don't have a problem being on video games all day long why do you have a problem being on you know zoom for class all day but it really isn't the same and and my son would say that you know you you know you grown up say that but it's not the same thing and then the kids won't turn their cameras on so you don't even see your friends even in spaces where you could see them you know what i'm saying and so i think that really helped us understand that and this is a, a, an important point I want everyone to, to take away here is mental health issues are not relegated to adults. And anybody at any time in the DSM, which is the book that we use for, uh, for diagnoses, is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual um, for Personality and Mental Health Issues. If there's a diagnosis that you have, that's the book that it comes from. We have a whole section of the DSM on di- diagnoses uh, of childhood. And then, but now we're starting to see, like we saw, like I said, last year with COVID, um, kids experiencing things that are not just determined to be childhood diagnoses like depression and anxiety. And so we really have to ensure that we are modeling good mental health practices and good self-care practices because our children are watching us. And just because you're not talking to them about it, and just because you're not 
Um, you don't believe that it's real. Ain't nothing wrong with him. You know, that kind of thing. Just because you believe that doesn't mean it's true with a capital T. It might be your truth. It doesn't mean it's the truth. And so we have to be very clear that we are exacerbating and elongating generational mental health trauma when we don't acknowledge that our kids are possibly experiencing or when we ourselves are experiencing it and we don't get help for it. I really, I really appreciate that perspective because it really puts, I guess, the onus on all of us, like to take care of all of us and to create this kind of culture of care as a people where we are worried about our friends and we're worried about the people that we work for and work with us and the people that we go to school with like we care about the health of all of them and how they're doing and I think it's important like we talked about you know like this is a really big like stigma like where do we start and it's almost like where don't we start like we can start with our children we can start with our family we can start um with our friends i know something me and my friends do alone is like we really hold each other accountable for using the word crazy out of context and mm. like that's just something we do as a friend group and so like you can start with your friends it's like workplaces i feel like have a really big role to play in how they take care of their employees and schools and how they take care of their students and so i just really appreciate like mental health issues can sometimes feel like a really personal and isolating issue i feel like and when you really open it up to you know like we are all dealing with these issues and we could all be dealing with these issues and it's just important to kind of be thinking of everybody and kind of cultivating that kind of culture mm -hmm. I love the notion of accountability because, you know, I have a, a group of colleagues, we're all uh, Black women professors in the academy, which, as you probably have learned from the Nicole Hannah-Jones situation, is fraught with <laughs> racism and, and all other things, all other isms. But we've been friends for a long time, but we've created this accountability sister circle that we have been doing now for about 10 or 11 years, and it started out as us prioritizing our scholarship goals. Because as a professor, like, of course, you're gonna teach your class, you're gonna grade your papers, you're gonna do the service, but your scholarship is also very important, but it's easy for us to put that on the back burner to deal with more urgent deadlines, right? And then over time, it just morphed into, you know, instead of us saying, well, what are your three scholarship goals for the week? It became, what are your scholarship goals? What are your self-care goals? We started talking to each other about needing to prioritize rest. You know, our society makes it seem like, you, you know, you're a boss if you're busy all the time and you're exhausted. Oh, girl, I am exhausted. I've got a million things going on. Sis, take a break. Like that is, that's not a brag, right? That's not dope. Like that's not great. It, it, did you take a minute to take a nap? Did you, I, I take a nap in the middle of the day, right? And I, if I feel tired, I'm like, oh, that's it. I have a couch in my office on campus. And if I need to close that door and close those blinds, I will take a 30 to 40 minute power nap and I am good. But it is, it's not a brag to say that you're running in all different directions and everything. I mean, but we sometimes wear it like that, right? So we will say to each other in those moments where you inevitably don't realize that you're running yourself then somebody in our circle is gonna go, sis, how much sleep are you getting? How much water are you drinking? You know, when's the last time you read a book for pleasure? You know, as opposed to, you know, when's that she just dove into a novel, right? And so we do, we talk to each other and now we prioritize that. And I think another thing is, and I, and I think Emily's point spoke to this as well, is, and, and I love how you said this too, Alyssa, is that 
you'd be surprised how many people are listening for things and, and they're testing the waters and you don't even realize it. So if you say things like we know from there's some data uh, from a, a scholar at Howard University, Trisha Bank Goodley, um, in their School of Social Work, and she did some research on domestic violence uh, among African American and white women, and she found that Black women stay in violent relationships longer and suffer more uh, severe uh, abuse, physical abuse. And then, when asked why it took them so long to go to shelters, they would say, "Well, that's a white woman problem." They didn't want to acknowledge it. But what had happened was when they talked to their peers, they might be out with friends or on the phone and be like, so, you know, um, what, what y'all think about that girl got beat up by her boyfriend? I wish he would, you know? And so then they're like, oh, oh, she's stupid for staying with him. She might've been testing the waters and you don't even know it. And you're sort of off the cuff, sister girl, I, he better not put his hand. That turned into, well, that's not a safe space. And it may have been like, I am so stupid. I, I can't believe that I'm, you know, it, that's not empowering. And so that you all are willing to say, we don't say crazy. We don't, we don't say crazy like that. Like, you know, that you're willing to stop that in its tracks. You just never know who's listening to you. And so if you say like, um, you know, sometimes I think I need a counselor. Girl, what, you crazy now? You know, no, I'm not crazy now. You know, that kind of thing. But you just never know what someone's, what your bigger message is that's being received than the one you think you're sending. So I, I love that you all are are stopping that in, in its tracks. Not to stay on this topic too long. I just have one more thing to add. Um, but I think I agree with Alyssa. I think uh, breaking the stigma really does start by like talking more about it and like holding each other more accountable because I feel like with this younger generation, like I said, I feel like we have lots and lots of trauma. Like we've seen some shit like, and not to say that older generations haven't, but I feel like, especially with like, we're talking about the media, like we just constantly see like a tragic event after tragic event after tragic event in the media, um, which um, I think Trinity's going to uh, talk about too later. Um, but I just like, ugh, like it, it sticks with us. And I think um, it's our duty to pass along to younger people that, yeah, this is okay. Like you're going to see traumatic things and then you're going to need to, you know, get some help and go to therapy and that's fine. Um, so like, I think it just needs to be like passed down and normalized because I feel like in black and brown communities with our parents and grandparents, um, like we're talking about, it was, it was not normal. Like it was, you know, oh, you just push through it or, oh, you just pray about it and it, it's fine. But uh, as we go along, like we need to teach our children, we need to teach our peers and, and stuff that, no, it's okay. Like we, you need to do this for, you know, your, your health because it is health. Like, like right. um, Dr. Hardy was saying, like, it's just like, if you break your arm or if you, you know, you cut yourself, like you need a bandaid, you need to go to the doctor. I mean, it's health. It's like brain health and your brain is your most important organ, <laughs> arguably. So, so yeah. I agree. Okay, Trini, I'm sorry. <laughs> we had so many responses. No, no, this is exactly what I wanted. You're doing amazing. Um, I just wanted to kind of add back into what I was just talking about and then uh, kind of steer into our next topic. Um, <clears throat> um, a lot of you, well, I'll, literally everybody mentioned about how things are going to manifest themselves in different ways. You know, if you're experiencing something, it's going to come out. It's going to come out. And there was a quote that I seen on Facebook not too long ago, and it was saying, um, "Just because someone cures it well, doesn't mean that it's not heavy." 
And um, Dr. Hart, I think that speaks to your point is no matter how much you try to push it down, it's going to eventually come up. Um, so just to, to kind of um, take this conversation into a different direction, Dr. Hardy, what advice would you give? Um, and like I said, you kind of touched on this before, but what advice would you give a person of color who is afraid to seek treatment? Mm. To try to find a, because uh, I think one of the challenges too is that when when people of color are contemplating therapy, they, I mean, we have a lot of trauma that comes from racism in society, right? And so sometimes our depression or our anxiety are not just, you know, the daily life stressors, it's the daily life stressors through the lens of someone who is uh, a person of color or a woman or whatever. And we worry that when we talk to a therapist, they're not going to get it. They're not going to understand. They're going to minimize it. They're going to, uh, you know, it, it didn't affect you directly. Um, you know, I, I have this phrase I like to use when I'm teaching clinical classes, which I don't do as much anymore, but I'm calling someone a distant witness, you know, just because we weren't there to witness, for example, 9-11, we weren't in ground zero, but we all witnessed it. Even people who were born afterwards see the, the commemorative television shows and see the planes and, and all of that. And you you didn't witness it personally, but you do know that it exists. No, I didn't know George Floyd, but I watched that video and that that hit me in a different way. And so, and it wasn't just, well, that was a really traumatic event, this person. And it's different. It's different because it's also layered on top of, you know, everyone else who had, who has died this way, you know, before him, um, wondering if someone you know or you will be next. Like, it's a different kind of anxiety. And so you wonder if someone will even be able to get it, you know. Um, and so I think one of the things, if you're, if you're worried about going to see a therapist, I think the first thing you might want to do is find a therapist that you think will be able to speak to whatever that salient aspect of what you're seeking treatment for it, you know, what do you all share in common? Do you need a, a woman therapist? Do you need a person of color therapist, regardless of gender? Um, wh whatever it is, right? If, if whatever you're challenged with is something that you think is it's something that just the average person wouldn't understand. And that happens a lot, right? Like we, we do a lot of this in, in psychoeducation is helping clients understand that the thing you're experiencing as so incredibly personal has been experienced by thousands of people. We, we like to normalize things like this in treatment because we want people to understand you're not alone. Um, others are also experiencing this. And, and we let's go with some data, you know, X number of percentage of people are diagnosed with depression, like so that you don't feel like a unicorn in a bad way. Like I'm so rare, nobody else understands what this means. Um, so that helps. It doesn't mean that your situation is like everyone else's, but it helps to know that you're not alone. And I think that starts with having someone sitting across from you who you feel like can really get you in the way that you need to be gotten, if you will, in the therapeutic process. So I, I think that's definitely uh, one thing you could do. And then start putting some feelers out. You know, here's another thing you could do. Now, a lot of telehealth. I mean, we talked about telehealth years ago, and it was this weird kind of peripheral thing. Once COVID hit, it became a huge necessity for people who were now physically disconnected from their ongoing therapy sessions or people who as a result of COVID and the isolation it created, the anxiety it created, started reaching out. 
So, you know, Michael Phelps likes to talk about uh, Talkspace and, and other apps that one can use to do these things virtually. And so maybe if you're in the comfort of your own home, where at any point you can slam the laptop down if you, if you just feel like this isn't working. Like if maybe if you have that and it's private and nobody has to know, no one sees me walking into the therapy office, right? Then that might be a, a, a good first step if you're worried about it. And then I think finally, talking to someone that you know has has gone to treatment, which is why you all think, Emily, about saying, well, yeah, you know, I had therapy yesterday, but then after that, I did whatever, right? Like, it's just a regular, somebody might go, hey, Emily, last week, you talked about going to therapy. Can I talk to you about that, right? So making sure that you are presenting, this is normal and accepted, and I am open to talking to you about it, so that someone can talk to you as sort of the intermediary before they get to going to therapy. To therapy, Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. And one thing, uh, just kind of want to backtrack on, or your first point with uh, re representation, you know, as kids, when we look on, a, I'm going to use TV, for example, you know, when we see Disney princesses, we just want to see ourselves, you know, in those, uh, in those princesses. So I think um, also seeing ourselves in these different spaces, especially like uh, counseling and therapy is, um, is will be like one of the first steps or a, a key point in us seeking treatment um one experience that i want to talk about is my uh orientation for dmnc um we have a a young lady named des and the first question she asked us during orientation she was like what are you guys um basically asking us and what right now is worrying you and um can you leave it at the door you know and that was one of the, the that was the first time I felt heard or seen in, especially in a works, uh, workspace environment. And then, um, herself, I mean, this, this, this really is a, um, um, a fact, like you said, this, this is just a scene in her life, but she's a black queer woman. And so just her saying that to me just made me feel, you know, heard, seen and felt special. So now uh, during the orientation, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm worried about A, B and Z, but you know what? she heard me she understands she allowed me to express what was uh what was um bothering me and now i'm able to you know continue on my day and i just feel like doing small things like that um normalizing and also you know going back to your point representing being a representation of saying you know it, maybe i was somebody that was a uh, that you know didn't want to vent or didn't want to express my feelings but now i'm put into this space where i'm able to and you know it just opens up a, a new world for me Mm-hmm. Well, that is awesome. I'm so glad that she created that space. That and that's we need to hold space for folks and 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 say a thing. Like I like to do this in class where I know there might be a viewpoint that someone holds, but they don't feel comfortable being the ones sharing it because they don't want to get attacked by their peers. So I'll share it. I'll I'll well, what about this? You know, and somebody else and everybody go, oh my God, well, attack me. Like I'm fine being attacked, right? But let's get that conversation out there. And it usually gives somebody, you know, tacit approval to go, well, actually I kind of feel the same way because at least now you know you're not alone in this space. Even if I don't genuinely share that view, I want you to know that I understand that that view exists and I value what that view is. And so I like that she created a space for you to feel seen and heard and uh, and represented. I like that. So bravo to her. Tell her I said thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Emily kind of touched on this um, earlier, but um, one one thing, 
or at least this time last year, you know, we're in the month of June, we're in the month of July, you know, we're going through the coronavirus pandemic and we're also going through a racial pandemic. Every time we um, turn on the TV, it seems like another uh, uh, black live is being taken or attacked. Um, every time we look on social media, we're seeing videos of people literally being murdered on camera. Um, so um, I just want you to kind of think back to that time and also the present time, because I mean, honestly, not much has changed. You know, maybe we're outside a little bit more, but this attack on black lives is still very much present. Um, and these times, how do we preserve our own mental health? Oh man, like that's a, that's a huge one. So, and, and we all, we all feel it. I mean, it's, it seemed like there was a period where it seemed like it's probably about six years or so ago it was like every single day, another life was getting taken. And, you know, and I, and as the daughter of two law enforcement officers, my dad's a retired DC police officer. My mom was a federal agent with the state department. Um, you know, I, I believe in law enforcement. I believe in you know, the duty to protect and serve and all that kind of stuff. But I also believe that um, you're still, you're a person first. We are all people first. And what you bring with you, you know, is exacerbated by the badge. And so if you're really about that protect and serve life, then the badge only makes you more invested in doing that. And if you are not, then the badge becomes a shield to protect you from the wrong that you are doing. And so, you know, it, when it's, it's a weird paradox to have come from a family where we believe in law enforcement. And if something happens, the first thing you do is go find, go call the police. And then you look and go, maybe not. Right? I mean, what do I do with that now? How do I live in this duality? And so it, it got to where you just, I couldn't watch it anymore. And I am a, a licensed social worker and I just couldn't take it anymore because you start to get so much anxiety around it, especially as the mother of an African-American boy. You know, I've, I've often wondered, like, how tall does he have to get before he scares some bigoted person on the street? He's almost my height now. He's got a little baby mustache going now. He's got the little deeper voice going now. So, you know, I worry about if he goes out on his own, uh, what is going to happen? And so we have to have those conversations about you just get home, do whatever they tell you to do, just get home. We'll fix it when you get home kind of thing. And so fortunately he's not of the age where he can kind of be out on his own. You know, he doesn't drive, he's only 14, but I know those days are coming. Um, so my own anxiety and, and racial despair of watching other black lives taken is, is is exacerbated by the fact that I worry about my brothers, my father, my son, my friends, right? So after a while, I, I just stopped watching the news. I figure anything that was really breaking was going to penetrate my digital detox wall. But at the it was a point at which I just stopped watching the news for a minute. Like I, I was I was a total news wonk. I'm all about that MSNBC life, you know. Watch Ari. Chris, Rachel, Lawrence, Brian, like every hour on the hour. And it'd be the same stories for the most part. And I didn't even realize it, how much it was just really seeping into my psyche. It was, it was no longer an intellectual space. It was an emotional one. And so I just couldn't watch it. I mean, for months, I could not watch it. Um, when we had the last guy that lived in the White House, uh, I, I just, I stopped watching. And, and, and on some level, it felt like giving up. 
it felt like this is what they want us to do, to tune out, to not pay attention. But I was like, you know what? I have to stop looking at this because if I don't, I'm going to believe that the world is all doom and gloom. And so I became very intentional again on focusing on, you know, joys and passions that I had or um, being intentional about uh, you know, listening to music, gratitude journaling, being with friends, even if it's just on Zoom and kind of being up here. We're not going to talk about all of this. We're going to be, how are you doing? What did you do this week? Whatever, right? To really be intentional about not engaging that stuff. Um, turning off the notifications on my phone for breaking news alerts and, you know, Facebook posts and stuff like that so that I choose when I consume it. You know, if I want to go in, I'm not one of those people who says, take the app off your phone. I just say, turn off the notifications because when you look at, at your phone and there's a million notifications, it's like, it can be overwhelming and you haven't even read them yet, right? So now it's just like, I think I want to go on Facebook right now and then I will go as opposed to being brought into it, you know, a la the social dilemma on Netflix. If y'all haven't watched that, please watch it. It's so good. Um, but, you know, so I making choices about when you engage media and social media and what you engage, have something mindless to do that reminds you that the world really is okay and that the media's sort of purpose is information, but usually centered around this tragic thing. Right. So there are websites and, and Facebook posts. Be the one that does it too. be the one that posts the Facebook post. That's just like, I thought y'all needed to see this dog walking with this cat uh, at a picnic. Like, you know, you know whatever. I'm being silly about it. But be the one that posts the affirming, positive or funny story to just give people a mental break in their news feed. Right. So. I think that's that's a thing that that we can do. That's a way that we can protect ourselves from it. But then also taking some control. Um, I feel like when we watch all of this stuff and we receive all of these negative media uh, presentations, either through the news or social social media, it becomes so overwhelming and it feels like there's nothing I can do to make it change. I feel like I have no control. This is where maybe you go into your community and make a difference. This is where you go run a workshop in your community. This is where you go volunteer at a homeless shelter or a food pantry so that you can be part of a solution to a problem in somebody's life. This is where you go play with the little kids in the neighborhood so you can remember that there is still joy in the world and that you have the ability to foster that. And it takes a little bit of control back from the media mongers who are constantly inundating us with important but sometimes very draining and overwhelming information. Uh, I was going to say something really quickly to your point is that um, after everything that happened and you see these tragic events um, like last year over and over and over again, um, we talked about at the beginning of this internship, um, at least in comms, um, we talked about what kind of like people we were, like builders, healers, um, and stuff like that. Um, and I really saw myself as a healer because immediately after uh, George Floyd and after like all these tragic events in the news, I was like, okay, I need, I need to like protect, I need to heal people. Um, I need to like make sure people are doing okay. And um, especially, you know, like black and brown people. So um, I definitely saw that in myself. Is it like uh, what you said, Dr. Hardy is uh, sometimes you can be that person to like step in and want to do more. Um, so I started a healing space at my school 
Um, so I think it's very real as I like there's there's two sides of it. You can choose to disconnect, which is totally viable because like especially for black and brown people like you need to or you're or you're literally gonna like wear yourself out and not want to do anything um then on the flip side of it I think it's beautiful that we can get together and organize and um people can uh you know like advocate and people can heal so I think um there are different ways that people cope and I definitely see myself in that that is awesome, Emily. I love that you did that at your school and that your school was receptive to it because that doesn't always happen after many, many years of working in a school. I know that that doesn't always get to happen, but that you had the wherewithal to do that. Um, and then the support from the administration to do that is is really, really fantastic. I mean, because that's the thing, right? Like you, I tell my social work students all the time, there's nothing magical that happens when you walk across the stage. We don't sprinkle social work dust and now you're a social worker. I tell them you either have the spirit of a social worker right now or you don't. And there's nothing I'm going to teach you in this class is going to give you that heart, right? If you have the heart of someone who wants to help the community and families and individuals in it, then you have it right now. So go do something right now. You do not have to wait until you walk across the stage where you have the capacity to be a change agent right now. So I love that you uh, that you took that and that you, and I love that concept of being a healer versus a builder versus, I love that idea. I might have to introduce that in class this semester. Just kind of speaking back to your point of, um, you know, stepping away from the, you know, the phone or the TV, um, there's an author and oh, his name is James Baldwin and he wrote this like back in the 1960s but he mentioned um basically saying to be a black person in this country and to be uh relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage almost all of the time so I think that um your point that you made about stepping back and just you know um, kind of limiting what you consume is um a, a very good you know self-care um, activity. Um, and like you just said, you kind of mentioned some different self-care methods, but if you don't mind, can you go more in detail about other self-care um, methods or what self-care looks like in terms of taking care of your mental health just in general? Mm -hmm. I think, so yes, definitely the occasional digital detox, right? We definitely need that. I am a huge fan of gratitude journaling, journaling at all because you get to process your, your thoughts. But if you're intentional about saying, I'm going to do a gratitude journal, even if it's just three to five bullet points every day, it reminds you that there is still good happening in your life and in the lives of people around you. Um, it, 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 that's a self-care thing because it, again, there's no news story that comes on, you know, that says, let's talk about all the good news today, you know, and that would be a great channel, right, by the way, it would be an excellent channel. Um, and the, a version of that is like the Hallmark channel where every single show is about Christmas all year long. And so it's always happy. And, and I have found myself actually watching those very sappy, formulaic, the same theme over and over again type shows, but they're they're really fun and they're a, a mindless way to just to still be able to engage media, but not in a way that saps your soul. Um, that actually kind of builds you up a little bit. <laughs> so, uh, so go Hallmark Channel. Yes, I watch Christmas movies all year round. Um, so there, there's that thing. There's gratitude journaling. There's um, I like rituals. 
uh, self-care rituals. And, and it can be everything from having a morning and an evening routine uh, to I'm going to wake up, I'm going to maybe meditate for five to 10 minutes. And there's lots of apps that you can use for that. Um, uh, one of the, my favorite app is Calm, C-A-L-M. And I use that sometimes. I have a tendency not to be able to turn my brain off. And a lot of people I know are the same way. And so, but I will listen to one of those calm stories and I'm out like a light, you know, or we'll do like the daily 10 to 15 minute meditation and that, and I'm, and I'm so much calmer, <laughs> hence the name, right? Uh, but it, it really is very good. So you can still keep your phone near you and yet, and, and yet get some good benefit out of it. But having rituals, like I'm going to be very intentional about, I'm going to brush my teeth and then I'm going to wash and tone and moisturize my skin. Right. Like it's it's I'm going to do a facial routine because it's 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 calming, it's soothing and it's self-care that we tend to neglect. You know, we hop in the shower, brush our teeth, walk out the door, you put the hair in a bun, walk out the door. But when you say I'm going to be very intentional about taking care of my skin or about having a ritual that I do before I go to bed that helps me unwind um, and, and gives, you know, making the room a certain temperature so that I get into a really nice uh, deep sleep, stuff like that. Wearing the little eye mask when you go to bed so that it's really, really dark and you can really get into the sleep. So things like that are all self-care. But the other things are find what your medicine is and take it every day. I love music. And so, you know, I like, sometimes I will get in the car and if I got to go to the grocery store, I'm going to go to the one clear across town so that I can sing the Hamilton songs all the way there and back between waiting for it and satisfied. Like, I, I love it, right? I'm not going to wear my shot or whatever the music is I feel like listening to in the moment. I let it, I turn it up very, very loud because I really want to feel it and get all the way into it. And I'm singing and I'm dancing in the car and it's just bliss, right? And so, but if, but I know that's my medicine. If I'm not listening to music on a pretty daily basis, I can, I feel that. Um, if you are a creative person, I am not, but if you are, you know, create art or grown up coloring books are a thing, get one of those and really just take the time to do whatever color scheme you want. I've done a few of those and it is so therapeutic. And at the end, you have this really pretty thing that you could frame if you wanted to, right? Um, Self-care also means engaging with your peer group. Maybe y'all go to, you know, the paint party or you have a paint party, even if it's virtual, you're all in there and you're doing a, a painting together. Um, maybe it's, I was very intentional yesterday about going to lunch with a, a dear friend of mine that I haven't seen in forever. And we had this one window of time before she left town again. And I said, I don't get, we are going to lunch. It's going to happen. And we did it. We forced it. And it was wonderful. And so, you know, it, it really means centering the very essence of who you are as part of your day. If you look at your to-do list in your calendar or your planner, I bet you you're not on there most of the time. I use a, a paper planner, but I also use an Outlook calendar and I color code everything and I look at the monthly view. And if I don't see enough of the orange, which is my personal stuff, then I know that there is a lack of balance there. 
I'm doing everything for everybody else. I'm getting inundated with all of the doom and gloom from media, and I am not doing anything for myself. So I make sure I'm going to go get my nails done. I'm going to go get a facial. I'm going to window shop. You know, window retail therapy can sometimes be just as good as actual window retail therapy. Do the things that are going to bring you some peace and some joy because you cannot fill from an empty bucket. So I hope those are some some things that are useful for folks. Definitely. And uh, while you were speaking this whole entire time, you know, I felt a sense of, you know, um, I don't even know how to explain it, but I just now realized it's because I too am a Hamill fan. So, you know, we, we connect, we connect on more than one level, you know, not just doing social work, but uh, no, thank you seriously for uh, mentioning these self-care practices that we should all um, utilize. Next up, we will have Emily. I want to go ahead and turn it over to her. Well, we're asking guests, you know, how you're taking care of yourself this week or what your favorite self-care practice is. And it's something we're doing on all of our episodes. It just really pertains to this one. But um, we like to hear from everyone and just see kind of, you know, how they're doing. Ooh, I like both of those. Okay, I'll try to be brief because I know I've been long-winded. <laughs> so, <laughs> but there's just so much to say on this topic. Um, how am I taking care of myself this week? Uh, so I have a, a planner that has a habit tracker. And so one of the things that I'm trying to be very, very intentional about right now is reading for pleasure at least 30 minutes every day. Um, you know, as a professor, there's a lot of reading, but almost none of it is, is fiction and for, for pleasure. And so I, I just finished, um, oh God, you guys should totally read this book. It's called While Justice Sleeps by Stacey Abrams. Um, it's a novel. And I don't think a lot of people know that she used to be a novelist, even before she got into this political space, uh, but she wrote under a, a nom de plume. And so she wasn't using her own name as in her author in her writings but this one she is and the story is so great I couldn't read it fast enough it was amazing and so now uh someone just told me about another one and I started it last night and I'm like put this down you got to go to bed uh but it, it's called um oh god I wish I had it in here with me oh uh the personal librarian oh my god I read like 20 pages and I'm hooked. So I'm like, nope, nope, I gotta go to bed. Can't do this right now. So one of the things I'm doing is being very, very mindful of the need to bring in stories and 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 things where you can create a narrative for yourself because in media, the narratives are created by others. I like the idea of envisioning, if, if it's written well, you go on that ride with them. You are right there in that story. And so I am definitely doing that as a way of taking care of myself uh, by starting my new book. My favorite one, uh, I gotta say, it's probably, um, <laughs> This is more than a, I love a good bubble bath. Uh, I have a little placard in my bathroom that says, when all else fails, take a bath. And, you know, there is just nothing like some bubbles and candles and an incense burning with a little music playing in the back like that. And that can happen day or night. Like if I'm stressed out during the day, I'm going to the bubbles. It is, it is what it is. So, uh, but that is definitely my favorite way because, and this is, it goes all the way back to something Trinity and I were talking about um, at the very beginning of our conversation. It is 
you know, in, in my, I'm a Christian woman and we believe in, in uh, being like baptized, you know, and get dunked in the water. And so I always feel like when I'm in the water is when I'm closer to God, because there is, there's no barrier between us. Um, it's very, very private. It's just the two of you. And I feel like the water, I mean, Jesus himself got baptized in the water, right? So I feel like it's a healing and cleansing, literally and figuratively, uh, a healing and cleansing space. And so, and it's, and it's a time that is uniquely private. So there is nobody else in that space with you. You get to just unwind, take it all in. It's very aromatherapy because I've got the incense and the candles and the bubbles, very sensory and, and, and everything. And so for me, my favorite, favorite way to unwind and practice self-care is a fabulous bubble bath. <laughs> what about you, Trinity? One, well, I'll just answer the one about how am I taking care of myself because it, it, it's kind of the answer to both. Um, so I've been more, um, like adamant and taking my multivitamins, um, and just getting a routine, you know, cause I'm the type of person will, if nobody wakes me up or if I don't set an alarm, I will sleep till noon, you know? So I've just been trying to, trying to get myself on a routine and, um, you know, wake up, you know, do what I have to do, you know, brush my teeth, wash my face, you know, uh, maybe put a little bit of moisturizer on, you know, and I, I find that even though I don't like waking up early, when I wake up early and I do things like that, I tend to have um, a better day as a whole. So yes, um, taking care of myself, just, you know, get myself on a routine and just try not to sleep in all day and miss half the day. <laughs> what about the rest of you? I'd love to hear what you all do, or at least your your favorite thing or what you're doing this week, either one. Yeah, I feel like, so for what I'm doing this week, I definitely am taking it slow. That's like my self-care this week. Like there have been a few times where I'm like, I don't really want to do this. And I've been like, well, don't, don't do it. And I was like, okay, well, we won't do it. <laughs> and so we haven't. And that's kind of been how I've been taking care of myself this week. But unfortunately, it's not how I take care of myself every week. Um, my favorite self-care um, is maybe not the healthiest, but I feel like it's to like indulge myself, I guess, like in the things that I want, like that is a self-care technique for me. And I feel like it could go back a lot deeper. You know, I feel like I have not always felt like people around me have always cared for me or paid attention to the things that I want or have had the resources to maybe provide for the things that I may have wanted or been able to do that for myself. And now I'm at a point where I can. And so when I'm like, you know, I really want Mexican food tonight. That's what I want. I'm going to indulge myself. That's like kind of just my favorite kind of thing to do. So that's like my self-care. Love it. Love it. Love it. All right, everybody else too. Well, I'll say that this week I've, I um, am like kind of like a doing friend dates this week. So last night went out with a friend, we like got dressed up and we went and got tapas and it just felt nice to, you know, there's, there's no reason for us to get all fancy, but we decided to do so and just have a, you know, a, just like a nice evening, just the two of us. So, um, and I'm going to, I think I have a couple more this weekend that I have planned as well. So for me, it's, um, you know, seeing my friends, but, you know, kind of like Alyssa was saying, like treating ourselves a little bit, like there's no reason for us to spend money on fancy food, but we want to, and it was fun. So love it. 
I love that. Getting all gussied up. I love that idea. <laughs> um, yes. So my uh, self-care for this week is similar to Taylor's. I um, always love hanging out with my friends, especially after a whole year with like not being able to hang out with people. I love just like getting together um, with my friends. And last night um, I had a double date. Um, and then we came back to my apartment and like there, my roommates were here and then like some other friends were here and we were all just like having wonderful conversation. And it really, I just really loved it. I love just like talking to people, um, about like just anything. And so it was like, it was a good night last night. And anytime I'm hanging out with good people, um, and good company makes me feel, makes me feel great. Um, so, and then I guess my favorite self-care practice, um, mine's kind of also like Alyssa's, I guess just like um being lazy like I just <laughs> I love just like sitting on the couch and watch a nice movie um or tv show maybe have a glass of wine you know <laughs> and then like like just good food too I, I good food always makes me feel good like it, it's, it's it really does I agree Alyssa like just having a nice good meal like um even if you didn't cook it um sometimes it's better especially when especially if you didn't exactly. cook it exactly <laughs> exactly sometimes it's better because you didn't have to put all that work into it especially when you just want to be you know you just want to lay on the couch and and you know and treat yourself so mm -hmm. that, that's what I love that's awesome it's a lot of food happening in this uh, self-care <laughs> I think why not why not right well thank you everyone for answering our calm segment question and telling us how you're taking care of yourself and also giving me some ideas for how I can take care of myself in the future so thanks friends <laughs> And I just want to, you know, thank everyone again for being here. Trinity, thank you so much for planning this conversation. Dr. Hardy, thank you so much for being here with us. And I just want to ask you two, are there any final thoughts you want to leave with our listeners before we go? Oh, yeah. I'll just say really quickly to anybody who's listening, black, brown, purple, yellow, green. Um, don't if, if you feel the need to seek out mental health treatment, don't be hesitant about it. You know better than anybody if there's something wrong with you or if there's something, you know, um, that's, that's not feeling okay. So do good by yourself and seek out this treatment regardless of what you feel, you know, other people will say or any other traditions that you may have or anything in that nature. Um, we as black and brown people go through a lot. And a lot of times we try to internalize it and um, just as Dr. Hardy had mentioned earlier, it will come out in one way or another, whether that be uh, you feeling like you just can't handle it anymore or you um, lashing out on other people, it will show itself. So do what's best for you and seek treatment and good luck. I love it. I can't top that. She said it. I got nothing else to add. <laughs> well, thank you both. And Trinity, thank you for those words. Yes. Listen to yourself, listen to your needs, do what you need for yourself. And yeah, thank you all for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, ladies. I appreciate it. Thanks for helping us create a North Carolina that's built by us. Thanks for listening to this podcast made of, by, and for the people. Bye. Bye. Connect with us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DemocracyNC. Or you can visit our website at democracync.com.
www.thepeopleshow.org.